0: Hello everyone, before we start the show, I wanted to alert you to an organization that helped me add a new member to our family. It's called the Lincoln County Humane Society, and they helped us adopt Sammy, the little black cat. Serving the greater Niagara area, their mission statement is to coordinate efforts to rehome animals in their facilities, work with rescue organizations, run comprehensive adoption programs, work with the Ontario SBCA on their high-volume spay and neuter clinic, utilize volunteers in foster homes and working hard to maintain the health of their resident animals. This is to ensure that they find their forever homes. Right now, they're having a hard time getting kitten items like litter, flea treatments, and especially formula. So if you have some extra money or items to donate, go to lchs.ca under the donate section. They have myriad ways to support their animal rescue and adoption programs, so please go to lchs.ca to learn more. Right, Sammy? <laughs> May 19th, 1962. Two weeks after Marilyn's passing, objectivist philosopher and novelist Ayn Rand wrote a special in the Los Angeles Times newspaper. Though usually an obtuse and rigid personality, Rand let her emotions flow as she mourned the passing of one of her very few idols. Marilyn Monroe on the screen was an image of pure, innocent, and childlike joy in living color. She projected the sense of a person born and reared in some radiant utopia, untouched by suffering and unable to conceive of ugliness or evil. She faced life with the confidence, the benevolence, and the joyous self-flaunting of a child or a kitten who is happy to display its own attractiveness as its best gift it can offer the world, and who expects to be admired for it, not hurt. What broke her was the discovery, when at the top, of a sordid evil more so than the one that she had left behind. Worse, perhaps, she had expected to reach the sunlight, she found instead a limitless swamp of malice. A happy child who was offering her achievement to the world, with the pride of an authentic greatness and of a kitten depositing a hunting trophy at your feet, who found herself answered by concerted efforts to negate, to degrade, to ridicule, to insult, to destroy her achievements. For it was her best that she was punished for, not her worst. Who could only sense in helpless terror that she was facing some unspeakable kind of evil? The evil of a cultural atmosphere is made by all those who share it, Anyone who has ever felt resentment against the good for being the good and has given voice to it is the murderer of Marilyn Monroe. Welcome to Smokeville Brooms a political true crime podcast exploring history's most infamous governments, parties, leaders, policies, and discontents. Hosted
1: by Gregory Zink.
2: Murdering Marilyn Monroe. The Kennedy Conspiracy Theory, Part 3.
0: Welcome back to the Smoke-Filled Rooms podcast. When we last parted ways, our shining star Marilyn was about to perform one of the most iconic and enduring historical moments of the 20th century. It was her birthday presentation in Madison Square Garden to President JFK. Her rendition of the Happy Birthday song would become the basis for numerous spoofs, imitations, jokes, and private parties with blonde wigged strippers. But back on May 19, 1962, the champagne flowed, and Maryland's publicist, Patricia Newcomb, accompanied her to the high profile affair. And in regards to her attire, she did not disappoint. Once inside the building, she shrugged off an ermine wrap and revealed a skin-tight, rhinestone-encrusted gown that made her appear to be naked, yet glimmering. It was a Jean-Louis custom-made, flesh-coloured design that had more than 2,000 hand-stitched crystals attached to it. Indeed, it was so uniquely fitted to her exact dimensions that she had to actually be sewn into it backstage. The
2: flesh-coloured dress is set to go under the hammer in California on Thursday. It's historical, it's political, it's a work of art, it's Hollywood, it's Marilyn Monroe, it's the Kennedys. It's everything wrapped up into one piece of fabric, souffle gauze with 2,500 crystals, hand-stitched here in Los Angeles with Elizabeth Courtney a Western Costume Company, designed by John Louie, and Bob Mackie did the sketch. Marna Monroe wore this amazing, exquisite dress designed by Jean-Louis, who Marna Monroe knew and had worked with. In fact, he designed outfits for the misfits and for something's got to give. Very few people actually realize that Bob Mackie was
1: the one that did the sketch for the dress because Bob was 21 years of age working for Jean-Louis. Actually, my job. Working with Jean-Louis was the first job I booked in Hollywood when I was just out of school. Bob Mackey is a dear friend of Julian's auctions. In fact, we did an auction for Bob back in 2005, known as the King of Blink. You know, that was the first time I'd ever been involved in a dress like that. But since then, I've done probably millions of that kind of dress. The illusion of being naked. <laughs>
0: and as a quick aside on this topic, that is to say, Marilyn's figure and dress selection she often picked ones that were slightly too small for her. It was often the case that the clothing sizes she quoted the designers directly contradicted reality, or at least stretched the truth. Biographer Tara Borelli says that, quote, As a consequence of the stresses in her life, she was eating more and thus gaining weight. It's true that she was a tad rounder at the time, but not by much. However, every pound mattered when wearing those skin-bearing gowns for which she was becoming so famous for. And at a loss for what to do, she began using colonic irrigation. Basically, enemas. If she had to get into a dress that she didn't think would fit, she would endure as many enemas as it would take to squeeze into it. But eventually, she would succeed and lose inches in a day. Though this was an extremely dangerous way to control one's weight and figure, Marilyn would swear by it for the rest of her life," end quote. And looking perfect for JFK was the overwhelming goal of the night. Many would assume that the entire intent behind Monroe's song, dress, and manner that evening was to wow JFK and convince him to leave his wife Jackie. And to do it in front of thousands of guests and cameras was a bold strategic move on Marilyn's part. And especially telling was that the First Lady, well, she was conspicuously absent from the proceedings that night. In the evening, it was a scene of garish decadence, where the champagne was flowing and America's elite gathered to honor their golden boy. The man who seemingly traversed Hollywood and politics simultaneously with his looks and charm and was always the center of attention. And the most anticipated guest of the evening was the much-rumored mistress of the 35th president finally very late that night right before the cake was delivered to the president Marilyn took the stage as douglas thompson notes quote when she appeared she wasn't the only one holding her breath she stepped up to the microphone and wished the president well and a happy birthday song in a childlike playful voice which has echoed her story of sadness ever since it was blatant the gossip columns loved it but were careful in their reporting. Still, that evening, alarm bells rang. End quote. Chief Parker and all the Kennedys were in attendance, and it was actually Peter Lawford who, in a darkly ironic and black humorous fashion, introduced her as quote, the late Marilyn Monroe. And for this portion of the show, I will gladly repeat what Monroe biographer Randy Borelli has written on what followed. Quote, when Marilyn finally took the stage, the theater erupted into thunderous applause. She was charismatic, empowered, and of course, spectacular. Peter Lawford watched her wiggle toward him, her steps restricted to tiny strides due to her sheer gown's tightly tailored hem. After delivering a final punchline to the running joke of the evening, the late Marilyn Monroe, he reached towards the star's ample bosom and took from her an ermine fur. She stood there, looking almost naked, wrapped only in her ethereal beauty, shimmering in sequins, beads, and sparkling light. Alone now, she waited for the crowd's reaction to wane before she could start to sing, and it didn't quiet for some time. The applause became less apparent, though, as a low pitched throng of gasps and cheers came forth, mostly from the men in attendance. In fact, There was a full 30 seconds between the moment her outfit was revealed and the time she was able to begin singing. During that time, the audience's reaction changed from hoots and hollers to audible mumbles and finally, a smattering of laughter. She held her hands at her brow in order to shield her eyes from the spotlight, maybe hoping to see more clearly the Man of Honour, a man she hoped might one day be more to her than just her commander-in-chief. Then. After a loud guffaw from one man in the first few rows, Marilyn's shoulders dropped and she sighed audibly, eventually deciding not to wait for the silence. She started to sing while the masses continued expressing their reactions. her voice a sexy and maybe just a tad off-key whisper. The room continued its rowdy response as she did her best to give her public what it wanted, an unmistakable and very specific memory of Marilyn Monroe. Finishing the first chorus, she motioned for the audience to join in. The crowd responded to her invitation by taking up the song and trying to follow her somewhat erratic, arm-waving conducting. After she finished her performance, a man approached Marilyn from behind. While the cameras cut to a birthday cake being wheeled in, she was escorted from the stage and away from the moment in which she wanted to participate. President JFK climbing the stairs to the stage to say a few words of appreciation. Marilyn wanted to simply give him a quick peck on the cheek and then shuffle back off stage. Yet there were too many present who felt she was too unpredictable that night, too erratic. Once backstage, Marilyn heard the president express his gratitude for her performance. Now I can retire from politics, he said, after having happy birthday sung to me in such a sweet and wholesome way. Needless to say, most onlookers were stunned. Dorothy Kilgallen, one of the first 500 people with a star on the Walk of Fame, described Monroe's performance as, quote, making love to the president in front of 40 million Americans, end quote. She additionally noted that amidst the after-party, she danced with Bobby Kennedy at least five times, and that Ethel Kennedy watched in a visibly unamused fashion. It was reported that many media members present were informally warned of writing too much about the evening, lest John's Catholic schoolboy image be tarnished. It is then reported by Rothmiller and his sources that Marilyn left with JFK to his suite at the Carlisle Hotel, the last night they were known to have been intimate together. For as Marilyn once famously stated, quote,
2: I don't mind living in a man's world, as long as I can be a woman in it.
0: And on May 24, 1962, less than 100 hours from her birthday performance, Peter Lawford called her to tell her the news. The news that she would never see John again, and that she wasn't to attempt to contact him in any way, shape, or form. Her secret access phone codes were denied by the White House staff, and Lawford told her that, quote, look Marilyn, you were just another one of Jack's fucks, end quote. Heartbroken, she tried writing letters to JFK and RFK. She telephoned the Department of Justice but she couldn't reach either of them. She worked herself into a mild depression and was sedated by Dr. Engelberg for two consecutive days to help clear her mind. And shortly after her near coma-like existence, following the medical advice, there are records of calls made between Marilyn and Bobby when he was in Washington and at the St. Francis Hotel in San Francisco. Rothmiller recalls diary fragments that reveal that, quote, Bobby is gentle, he listens to me. He's nicer than John. Bobby said he loves me and he wants to marry me. I love him too. John hasn't called though, but Bobby called. He's coming to California and he wants to see me." End quote. So RFK saw in Monroe a hurt and emotionally fragile girl with the potential to be a high profile conquest for his own egotistical purposes something seemingly in keeping with all the male Kennedys, all of whom obviously staked a considerable amount of their egos and personalities upon grandiose insatiability. In late May, Bobby Kennedy stayed with the Lawfords for some time away from the public eye, and that's when he and Marilyn had some drunken sexual encounters. She wrote in her diary that they did so and that it was, quote, their little secret, end quote. Shortly after, on June 26, 1962, the Lawfords hosted a beach party that Bobby Kennedy attended as a guest of honor. Obviously, Marilyn was there, and they were said to have hooked up again at the 4th of July celebration the following week. But starting in July of 1962, RFK was pressured by his brother's political friends, certain protective family members, and his own advisory circles to permanently dismiss Marilyn. All parties privy to the affair saw her as a deteriorating and potentially dangerous source of needless controversy. This could eventually lead to RFK's political death, and the career-ending revelations could come from many facets of his tryst with Monroe. For alongside the sexual maraise being exposed, both as an affront to his marriage with Ethel as well as his image as a public figure, there was the abortion allegations and accusations of involvement with drug-fueled orgies in his debauched Hollywood circles. Even further still was the mental health angle. Marilyn was slowly being painted as an unreliable and mercurial addict who may be falling prey to schizophrenia in the same manner as her mother. So not only would it be an affair, but also an affair with someone who could be labelled as crazy and dirty, which would have permanently destroyed his own chances at the presidency further down the line. And if you doubt this interpretation, look at what happened to President Clinton 35 years later in a decidedly more liberalized society. And on top of all the aforementioned uncertainty and potential bad press, was the possibility of a Monroe abortion in July of 1962, during her stint of being intimate with both Kennedy brothers throughout that calendar year. According to reporter Ariel Zilber, writer for the Daily Mail, quote, a publicist who worked for Monroe's press agent, Arthur P. Jacobs, said that on July 20th, 1962, the actress was secretly admitted to Cedars of Lebanon Hospital in Los Angeles to terminate a pregnancy. The author goes on to write that if she had indeed terminated a pregnancy, we have no way of knowing whether or not she told RFK. What we do know is that she seems to have plunged into a profound depression. Monroe was so distraught emotionally that she was seeing Dr. Ralph Greenson, a psychiatrist, on a daily basis since that summer started, end quote. So if cynically looking through this narrow lens of abortion, drug use, and mental illness, one can see how the urgency for ridding oneself of these ticking time bomb problems would become a pressing matter. With their fun had, and the risk-reward balance shifting towards impending disaster, it's not far-fetched to consider that Bobby and Jack Kennedy were weighing their options in a smoke-filled room in the back of the White House. But it seems as though RFK was selfishly trying to figure out how he could use Monroe up until the last possible second before he ditched her, seemingly telling himself that one more fuck wouldn't hurt. I could ditch her after one more visits to the Lawfords. No one's gonna find out. I know what I'm doing. And in this rare clip, we can hear Marilyn discussing her thoughts on lying. I
1: have a hard time. might leave something out, but I won't put anything else in extra. I might leave something out because uh, to my benefit, or somebody else's benefit, hurt people or hurt myself sometimes, you know. We all want to protect ourselves also, so uh, I might leave something out, but uh, I, I, I don't think I... Uh, no, I, I don't think I lie. At least if I would try, it's difficult. But I
0: do want to And Marilyn knew human nature better than most. For after being used as a piece of meat by lovers, producers, designers, and photographers, she grasped at what people's real motivations were. She is even noted as saying that, quote,
2: I can't really stand human beings sometimes. I know they all have their problems as I have mine, but I'm really too tired for it. Trying to understand, making allowances, seeing certain things that just wear me down.
0: Yet for some inexplicable reason, she apparently gave the Kennedy boys, and especially Robert, the benefit of the doubt, in perpetuity. And in 1962, politics could not be mixed with drugs, sex, and fame. People, and more importantly, the voting public, were expecting their leaders to be strictly PG, with classical sensibilities and a mind towards reasonableness and boringness. So in this vein, it wouldn't be hard to see how sensationalized stories could be spun about Monroe's suicide attempts, overdoses, casual sex, mental health struggles, alcohol abuse and interestingly all of these elements would at this point in our story which is the last week of july 1962 would intertwine in a lewd and unrestrained weekend at sinatra's request it is now known as the lost weekend and it involved nearly all the characters on our detective board hey everyone I just wanted to take a quick break from this episode to tell you about one of my favorite podcasts on earth. It's called History Impossible by Alex von Sternberg. Alex does deep dives on some of the most obscure and fascinating topics that you could ever imagine. If you've gotten this far in the episode, you're probably very interested in old school Hollywood. So you have to check out his two-part series called The Great Hollywood Cover-Up. And if the show description doesn't get you, I don't know what will. Alex explains that, Nearly 100 years ago, scandal after scandal was rocking the new kid in town, the motion picture business. Overdoses on mercury-bichloride, cocaine-addicted starlets, prostitution and drug rings, suicides, and an alleged raucous orgy ending in the rape and murder of an actress by one of its top stars. To hear this amazing content, go to Apple or Spotify and subscribe, download, and rate Alex von Sternberg's History Impossible. You will not be disappointed. I promise.
1: This is History Impossible.
0: Taking place at the Kalanova Resort, Sinatra invited Marilyn, Patricia and Peter Lawford, Bobby Kennedy, Dean Martin, Sammy Davis Jr., as well as mobsters Paul Skinny D'Amato and Sam Giancana. Mobsters, movie stars, and ministers of state were on this occasion gathered together to gamble and to drink to excess. Unfortunately for Marilyn, RFK decided not to show, and upon her arrival was told by Peter Lawford that she would never be in contact with the Kennedys ever again for any reason whatsoever. This newly presented reality dawned on Marilyn, and set into motion what some would assert was the final nail in the coffin for her demise less than a week later. As Rothmiller and Thompson report in their book Bombshell, quote, the Neville was Sinatra's lifetime albatross, and arguably, what happened at his casino contributed to the death of Marilyn Monroe. For if things had gone differently there on her last weekend on earth, maybe Bobby Kennedy wouldn't have found himself in a corner with, to him, just one solution in mind. Monroe got very, very drunk and told anyone listening at the table that the Kennedys simply used her as a, quote, piece of ass. She made it clear she didn't ever want to be pawed by anything but applause. Gone was the sexual sweetness, the easy swivel of her neck the vivaciousness she had on the screen, the pull of her shoulders, and the drop of her bottom beneath that long waist as she tottered along the train as sugar and some like it hot. The reality was awful. The exploitation, much worse. She was taken to her cabin, and later, in her doped up and drug state, she was joined there by Giancana and Sinatra and some of Skinny D'Amato's girls. It was a free-for-all with Monroe as the central player. Photographs were taken of the men and women sexually playing with Monroe. The film was developed overnight by Hollywood photographer Billy Woodfield. The prints were not good. In one image Giancana is a top Marilyn who is lying on her front. It is not clear what's going on but it became an accepted story among the mafia veterans from the Cuba gambling era that Giancana had forcibly anally raped Marilyn, so-called Sicilian sex, as retribution for her affair with Bobby Kennedy. Whatever the truth of that, government wiretaps recorded Johnny Rosselli saying to Giancana, quote, you sure get your rocks off fucking that same broad as the brothers, don't you, end quote. And we still have Marilyn's own confused recollection of the ordeal. Mike Rothmeller read and noted down Marilyn's thoughts from her diary kept in the Okid files. Noted in the diary were several entries regarding the weekend. The Kalneva weekend was also documented by other agencies and a report detailing that weekend was placed in Okid's secret files. From Marilyn's diary, he noted the following. Frank invited me to the lodge. He said it would be fun. He said never to mention Sam at the lodge. He's mafia, end quote. And it appears the following entries were made after she returned home. Rothmiller continues, before and after the entered items were scribbled out and not legible. Then more entries he noted from the diary became apparent. Like, quote, Frank, Peter and others were there. Frank said I can't keep my fucking mouth shut. He told me to get out. I don't know why he's treating me this way. And then immediately after that entry was another one that said, What happened to me? I was drunk. I don't remember. Did I have sex? End quote. Now, after this slate of events that messily unfolded over the course of that weekend, Sinatra was reportedly urging Marilyn, although some would say kicking her out the door, to leave the premises ASAP. It is said by Monroe biographer Tara Borelli, that Sinatra was deeply concerned about her mental and physical state and absolutely could not have her dying at his lodge. That's how bad Frank thought of her existence at that point. This was the last time he would see her and by most accounts quite purposefully. He turned his back on his former lover and let what came happen without any resistance. So following a couple days of drunken revelry Peter Lawford escorts Monroe to the airport and travels back with her to Los Angeles. This would be July 29th in our timeline, and barely the 29th, as this was a flight that landed at approximately 1 a.m. Officer Rothmiller asserts that even in those wee hours, under unexpected circumstances, Okid detectives documented her arrival. Another strange detail for this final weekend of her life is that after being dropped off at her home, Lawford called the White House from a payphone on Ocean Avenue. The call is said to have lasted for about 20 minutes and was placed at 7.30 a.m. The details of the conversation are not known, but it is not unreasonable to assume that it involved a personal report to the Kennedy staff. The topics undoubtedly included the events of the weekend, Maryland's reluctant acceptance of the separation news, and the connection to the unseemly criminal elements that gathered at the Calneva. Lawford, through the entirety of this sordid ordeal concerning Monroe's life, would be haunted by what transpired. Officer Rothmiller interviewed him shortly before his death and found a broken and guilt-ridden man who drank excessively to dull the pain of all the hurt that he had caused. But we'll get to that later on, because this was the last week of Marilyn's life and is largely accounted for by members of the Kennedy circle and her personal doctors. Many reports indicate that she was unstable, abusive, reckless, intoxicated, and unhinged. It would later be revealed that her psychiatrist and another possible Monroe homicide suspect, Dr. Greenson, submitted a bill to her estate after she died for this exact time period. She had extensive talk therapy sessions with the man on at least a daily basis that ballooned into a $1,400 bill. This would be roughly $13,000 in today's terms, and this is for a month's worth of sessions that were on average about an hour each. It is claimed that he spoke with her professionally for 28 days spanning from July 1st to the day of her death on August 4th, 1962. People close to her said she was simmering with rage towards the Kennedys, while others say she was happy about signing her new deal with 20th Century Fox. The Something's Got to Give project was to resume in the fall, and some people will claim that she moved on from Jack and Bobby almost immediately. But others paint a picture of a scorned woman bent on revenge. Some even insisted that she was preparing to schedule a public press briefing one where she would out the Kennedys and reveal all of the details of their relationships together, possibly even alerting the world to her abortion of Bobby's child. This is when we come to July 30th, 1962. That day... She saw Dr. Greenson for a one-and-a-half-hour conversation about her struggles and, according to his accounting, he did not administer a hypodermic shot or charge her for one. Furthermore, biographer Danforth Prince alleges that she made an eight-minute call to the Justice Department that day. This could have been Bobby or a chatty receptionist, but Prince asserts that Marilyn said, quote,
2: You tell him? that if he doesn't fly down to see me and talk things over, he'll hear from me at my press conference Monday morning. It'll make headlines around the world, although not of the kind that would help Jack's bid for re-election.
0: He additionally asserts that Marilyn told Peter that if Bobby did not come to her home to meet with her in person on August 4th by 6 p.m., that both men should tune in to her planned announcement days later. The next day, July 31st, as if seeming hellbent on revenge in as many ways as possible, she talked about attending a Broadway production of Mr. President while JFK and Jackie O were in attendance. Word is that Monroe even ordered a very special and especially sexy dress for her theater plans. Probably envisaging cornering JFK in the lobby and making things awkward for him in front of his wife with innuendo and reminders of Fling's past. And little did she know that the day after that, August 1st, the aforementioned journalist Dorothy Kilgallen from JFK's birthday party was recorded contacting the Department of Justice. She was attempting to get details and official confirmation about Bobby and Monroe's alleged affair. Unsurprisingly, no details were offered or confirmed, but she did successfully alert the administration about her skeptical inclinations and rabble-rousing writings. She would later on go against the Kennedy-Democrat party machine narrative by later rejecting the assassination story as detailed by the Warren report. Some even allege that this is why she would eventually die from a suspiciously similar drug and drink overdose herself. At the time of Miss Kilgallen's death, she was supposedly by herself in her Manhattan apartment where she indulged in alcohol and pills until she collapsed and expired. But friends and family heavily rebuked the story, but no investigation was ever launched, and the death tied up neatly in a matter of days. But back in Los Angeles on August 2nd, 1962, Monroe went furniture shopping with housekeeper Eunice Murray. And then they went off to a beach party hosted by the Lawfords. And in a small piece of Hollywood history, Warren Beatty was in attendance that night and unsuccessfully tried to hit on Monroe. She was at the time 11 years his senior, and this is how Thompson documents their interaction in Bombshell. Quote, I hadn't seen anything that beautiful, Beatty recalled. She invited him to take a walk along the beach, which he did. It was more soulful than romantic, he said. Back in the house, he played the piano. Marilyn sat on the edge of the piano in something so clingy that Beatty could tell she wasn't wearing underwear. How old are you? she asked. Twenty-five, Beatty answered. And how old are you? he asked cheekily. Three, six, she said, as if not wanting to bring the two numbers together. By then, the tacos had arrived and no one really wanted to play poker that night." End quote. Hey everyone. Before we continue on with the show, I wanted to tell you about a new podcast that I've discovered. It's called Chaos in Perspective with Coach Gillian Loren. With her positively focused philosophy, Gillian will introduce you to psychological strategies that will increase your mental, physical, and emotional well-being. She furthermore hosts guests that illuminate paths to the good life through exercise, self-reflection, and positive reinforcement. Her main focus is to help you achieve your goals and be the best version of yourself. So again, the show is called Chaos and Perspective and can be found on all podcast platforms. So cheers and rock on, Jillian. The following day of August 3rd, RFK and his family checked into St. Francis Hotel in San Francisco. This is an ever so important detail because his whereabouts on Monroe's death day are of supreme importance to our investigation. For it has been alleged, and in this theory refuted, that RFK was in Los Angeles for Marilyn's death day, which is now fast approaching in our timeline. Again. I can't stress this detail enough because it was heavily denied and obfuscated in the years following Monroe's death. So as Bobby was with his family and working in San Francisco, Marilyn was getting very frustrated with not being able to talk to Bobby for such a long period of time. I'm sure that the questions and betrayals swirled around in her mind constantly, exploding out randomly as she overanalyzed the events. Her emotions and harsh words caustically spat out when the alcohol was flowing and the pills started to wear off. After demonstrating what was likely some erratic or worrying behaviours and words, Dr. Greenson and her publicist, Pat Newcomb, decided she was to be accompanied and monitored that night. Newcomb stayed with her the entire time and they went out for dinner at the La Scala and Beverly Hills on the night of August 3rd. Newcomb has never officially confirmed what was discussed that night, but to pretend that the Kennedys were not broached seems somewhat ludicrous. And in the years following, her silence was even more perplexing considering the parental role that she took on in those final days. And since Monroe's career was picking up steam and she was happily furnishing and residing in her relatively new home, it's unlikely that she was dwelling on anything else besides the Kennedy boys. True that it could have been her mental state, and her seeming fixation on resistance towards becoming her mother Gladys, but the anger towards Bobby was still fresh in her mind. The abrupt cutoff from the relationship, mixed with the childish breakup via Peter Lawford as opposed to himself, must have left Monroe devastated and angered which leads us to August 4, 1962. This is the final day of Monroe's life and one which to this day is shrouded in accusations, differing accounts, and uncertain details. As bombshell author Thompson succinctly notes, quote, The story of Monroe's death verges on the mythical. It is almost always unworldly in tone. The vagaries about the circumstances are as whimsical as the cast of characters placed center stage over the years around it." Quote. So before we begin to take a look at the Kennedy conspiracy angle, we will first review the According to Hoyle version of events. This is the account that is overwhelmingly pushed by mainstream historians and biographers. Which is not to say that this is a complete fiction and that Officer Rothmiller and like-minded individuals are completely accurate. What I am intending to do here is to present the establishment narrative of Monroe's final day, and then contrast this against the Kennedy conspiracy hypothesis. We will first start with the widely accepted timeline of events for August 4, 1962, as presented by conventional sources. The typical timeline, as repeated and reiterated by Rothmiller and Thompson, Goes like this. 8 a.m. Eunice Murray arrives at Marilyn's house at 12305 5th Helena Drive. 9 a.m. Marilyn gets up, has juice, and tells Miss Murray that Pat Newcomb has stayed over the night. 10 a.m. Larry Schiller, the photographer, calls to the house to discuss Marilyn's racy photos from the set of Something's Got to Give. They will be appearing in Playboy magazine. 10.30 a.m. to 12 p.m. A bedside table is delivered, and Marilyn writes a check for it. Marilyn's citrus trees from the Montana Avenue Garden Center also arrive. 12 p.m. Pat Newcomb gets up and is about to leave when Eunice Murray offers her breakfast. Newcomb decides to stay on and spends this afternoon with Marilyn. The two argued over the fact that Newcomb had slept so late. 1 p.m. to 2 p.m. Murray claims that Marilyn asked her if they had any oxygen in the house. 2 p.m. to 4 p.m., Henry D'Antonio and his wife arrive with Eunice Murray's car. Miss Murray brings them into the kitchen and tells them Marilyn is resting in her room. 4.30 p.m. to 5 p.m., Dr. Greenson arrives. Greenson sees Marilyn in her room. 6 p.m., Greenson comes into the living room where Newcomb and Murray are chatting, and asks Newcomb to leave. Newcomb gets up and leaves without saying another word. 7 p.m. Greenson leaves to attend a dinner party with his wife. 7.30 p.m. Joe DiMaggio Jr., Joe DiMaggio's son, he calls and tells Marilyn he has ended his engagement with his fiance. Marilyn is happy about this and sounds upbeat on the phone. 8 p.m. Marilyn calls Greenson to inform him about the call from Joe Jr. It is suggested that at this point, Marilyn and Greenson had an argument, possibly about his need to get off the phone. Marilyn asks him, where is my Nembutal? This would be the first time that Greenson realized Marilyn had any Nembutal, as he understood his colleague, Dr. Hyman Engelberg, was not prescribing it to her anymore. Greenson has to go, and the call ends. Following that call, Marilyn returns to her room. 8pm to 9pm, Marilyn had agreed to attend a dinner party on the basis that she would go home early as she said Sunday was to be a busy day for her, and Peter Lawford telephoned telephone to check to see if she was coming. Marilyn, sounding weird, fuzzy, and sleepy, according to Peter, says she is tired and won't be going. He claimed it wasn't unusual to hear Marilyn like this, and thought she was either drunk or about to sleep after taking her pills. What Marilyn says next worries Lawford, and he quotes her saying, Say goodbye to Pat, say goodbye to the president, and say goodbye to yourself, because you're a nice guy. Marilyn's voice trails off, and Lawford said he presumed she had fallen asleep. 9pm-10pm to According to the autopsy report, Marilyn has swallowed 42 or so barbiturate tablets, enough to kill several people. Dr. Engelberg who was helping Marilyn keep off Nembutol by putting her on chlorohydrate, had, in this scenario, prescribed Nembutol for her on August 3rd. 9.30pm to 10pm Milton Rudin calls the house to ask if Marilyn is okay. Eunice Murray, unaware Rudin has received a call from a worried lawford, thought nothing of it and told Rudin that Marilyn was in bed. 10pm to 12am is unaccounted for. 12 a.m. to 3 a.m. Eunice Murray wakes up feeling something is wrong and sees Marilyn dead in her bed. 3.15 a.m. Dr. Greenson arrives at Marilyn's house. 3.30 a.m. Dr. Hyman Engelberg, he also arrives. 4.25 a.m. The police are called by Dr. Engelberg. Marilyn Monroe is pronounced dead. 4.28 a.m the West Los Angeles Police Division are informed of a death at 12305 Fifth Helena Drive.
1: By the time I have to do a scene, I'm all worn out from rushing through the hair, and the makeup and the clothes. So I like to do it leisurely, like I like to dress when I go out in the evening. I love to dress leisurely. I like to soak in the tub. And leisurely, uh, I like music. Seems <laughs> that we're rushing too much nowadays that's why like, people yeah. get nervous well i don't think i'm late all the time but maybe it is because i can't go as fast as other people you know people that get in automobiles they run into each other uh, because they never stop they're going like that and i don't think that mankind it's intended for them to go like that they're not supposed to be like machines let me get more done uh, the other way, by doing it more sensibly.
0: So, on top of that, I will additionally read the LA Times headline article from August 6th, 1962. And I remind you that this piece was collected, written, edited, and published in less than 30 hours following Monroe's death. Entitled, Marilyn Monroe Dies, Pills Blamed. Howard Hurdle and Don Neff write that, quote, Marilyn Monroe, a troubled beauty who failed to find happiness as Hollywood's brightest star, was discovered dead in her Brentwood home on an apparent overdose of sleeping pills on Sunday. The blonde 36-year-old actress was nude, lying face down on her bed and clutching a telephone receiver in her hand when a psychiatrist broke into her room at 3.30 a.m. She had been dead an estimated six to eight hours. About 5.15 p.m. Saturday, she had called the psychiatrist, Dr. Greenson, and was told to go for a ride when she complained she could not sleep. Her body was taken to the county morgue, where coroner Theodore J. Kerfey said after an autopsy that he could give a, quote, presumptive opinion, end quote, that death was due to an overdose of some type of drug. He said a special suicide team would be asked to investigate Miss Monroe's last days to determine if she took her own life. Further medical tests as to the nature of the suspected killer drug will be completed within 48 hours, he said. An empty bottle found among several medicines beside her bed had contained 50 nembutol capsules. The prescription was issued only two or three days ago and the capsules were to be taken in doses of one a night, said Dr. Engelberg. It was learned that medical authorities believed Miss Monroe had been in a depressed mood recently. She was unkempt and in need of a manicure and pedicure, indicating listlessness and a lack of interest in maintaining her usual glamorous appearance, the authorities added. The coroner's office listed the death on its records as possible suicide. While well, the police report said death was possibly accidental, no suicide note was found. Dr. Robert Lippmann, a psychiatrist serving on the suicide team, said notes are left by less than 40% of those who take their own lives. Miss Monroe's body was discovered after her housekeeper and companion, Mrs. Eunice Murray, awoke at about 3 a.m. and saw a light still burning in the actress's room. Miss Murray found the bedroom door locked. She was unable to arouse Miss Monroe by shouts and rapping on the door, so she immediately telephoned Dr. Greenson. Dr. Greenson took a poker from the fireplace, smashed in a window, and climbed into the room. He told Detective Sergeant R.E. Byron that Miss Monroe was under a sheet and champagne colored blanket, which were tucked up around her shoulders. Dr. Greenson took the telephone receiver from her hand and told Miss Murray, She appears to be dead. He called Dr. Engelberg, who had prescribed the sleeping pills for the actress, who pronounced her dead on his arrival at the house a short time later. Dr. Engelberg called police at 4.20 a.m., and two officers arrived within five minutes, followed by Sergeant Byron at 5 a.m. Byron said he learned that Miss Monroe had called Dr. Greenson Saturday night and talked with him for about an hour. He quoted the psychiatrist as saying, quote, I was under the impression she was going to take a ride to the beach or something like that, end quote. Byron said he went through the rambling Spanish-style home at 12305 5th Helena Drive and found nothing unusual or amiss. He reported there were between 12 to 15 medicine bottles on Miss Monroe's bedside stand, some with prescription labels. Miss Monroe only recently bought the $75,000 house, and it was only partially furnished. By dawn, reporters and photographers were milling around its lawns and swimming pool, silent in the morning quiet as officials closed out the life of one of Filmland's most glamorous stars. Miss Monroe's body was wrapped in a pale blue blanket and strapped to a stretcher as it was removed from the home. Seals were then placed on entrances to the home with the notice of, quote, Any person breaking into or entering these premises will be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. A special guard was hired to watch the home. Miss Monroe's body was loaded into the back of a station wagon and transported to the Westwood Village Mortuary, just yards away from the grave sites of her grandmother and one of her guardians in early life. The body later was transferred to the county morgue where the nation's number one glamour girl became coroner case number 81128 and the body was placed in crypt 33. Funeral services are tentatively scheduled Wednesday afternoon at Westwood Village Mortuary Chapel. Her mother, Miss Gladys Baker Ellie, 59, is a patient in the Rockhaven Sanatorium in Verdugo City. News of Miss Monroe's tragic death quickly circulated to much of the world. Even Moscow Radio made mention of it. Friends of the actress were stunned, unbelieving and saddened. Joe DiMaggio, baseball hero and the actress's second husband flew here from San Francisco as soon as he heard the news. His face was lined and he appeared deeply saddened when he alighted from a United Airlines plane. DiMaggio checked into a Santa Monica hotel where he declined to talk with reporters or pose for pictures. He and Miss Monroe had been seeing each other recently since her third attempt at marriage with playwright Arthur Miller collapsed in 1961. In Woodbury, Connecticut, Miller replied that, quote, I don't really, when asked if he had any comment. Her first husband was Jim Doherty, now a Los Angeles policeman. His only comment was, quote, I'm sorry, end quote. One of the first friends to arrive at the home Sunday morning was Pat Newcomb, a close friend of the actress and her press agent. Miss Newcomb, nearly hysterical with grief, sobbed, quote, when your best friend kills yourself, how do you feel, what do you do, end quote. She said she spent Saturday evening with Mus Monroe and had a quiet dinner and left at about 7 p.m. This must have been an accident, Newcomb said. Marilyn was in perfect physical condition and she was feeling great. We had made plans for today. We were going to the movies this afternoon. Milton Rudin, Miss Monroe's attorney, who also went to the house and told reporters he had talked with her on Saturday. She appeared to be happy, he said. She wanted to see me in my office Monday. Miss Monroe was hopeful she could settle her difficulties with 20th Century Fox Studios, which earlier this summer fired her from the movie Something's Got to Give. The studio claimed she refused to report for work, costing it $2 million because of its delays. It sued her for half a million dollars. But despite this, Rudin said Miss Monroe hoped to work out a settlement with the studio and get the picture back into production. Miss Monroe claimed throughout the dispute with 20th Century Fox that she was ill and unable to report for work. She always wanted to finish everything she started, said Rudin. Some believe Miss Monroe was depressed because her career was supposedly on the skids after two straight movie flops in Let's Make Love and The Misfits but friends were nearly unanimous in believing her death was accidental. They said two motion picture executives were bidding for her services at the time of her death. One of them was reportedly J. Lee Thompson, director of the film The Guns of Navarone, who planned to meet with her next Tuesday. Producer Sam Spiegel also wanted her to star in a picture for him. Miss Monroe had received an offer of $55,000 a week to star in a nightclub appearance in Las Vegas recently, but she turned it down. Further evidence that her career was on the upswing was indicated by a typewritten message on a table in her home. It was from a representation of Anita Luce, and it said quote, Dear Miss Monroe, on behalf of Anita Luce, now in Europe, we would like to know if you would be interested in the starring role for a new musical based on the french play gogo book by anita luce lyrics by gladys shelley and enchanting music by claude laville can send you a script and music if you express interest signed natalia Danesi murray an associate of miss monroe said her 23 pictures since 1950 when she had a bit role in the asphalt jungle have grossed more than 200 million Does that sound like she was depressed about her career, he asked. By mid-morning Sunday, the crowds of reporters, photographers, and friends cleared away from the officially sealed home where the tormented actress had spent her final hours. Miss Newcomb took the housekeeper home and carried with her Miss Monroe's small white dog, Moth. All that was left behind for the eye of the curious were the dog's two stuffed toys, a tiger and a lamb, lying in the rear yard. End quote.
1: One of the most famous stars in Hollywood history is dead at 36. Marilyn Monroe was found dead in bed under circumstances that were in tragic contrast to her glamorous career as a comic talent. On the surface, she seemed to have such a zest for life. Her international appeal took her from command appearances to the other side of the world and entertainment for Korean GIs, the star led a far-from-normal childhood and had 12 sets of foster
0: parents. Again, that was the official version of events that is roundly accepted by Monroe biographers and historians. Yet, this account does not fully explain the inconsistencies associated with her final day of life. And it definitely does not delineate the odd and contradictory pieces of the story that are often left out or derided as conspiratorial. What will follow in part four of this murdering Marilyn Monroe miniseries is the Kennedy conspiracy theory in regards to her untimely death. For as Rothmiller and Thompson point out in this regard, quote, the events of the next 36 hours have been, as intended by Captain James Hamilton, Chief Parker, and the Kennedy clan, a confusion of time, events, and encounters in order to perpetuate the great lie that Bobby Kennedy was not in Los Angeles that weekend. Using all the power and wealth at their disposal, the determined men mounted a cover-up which led to decades of whispers. From the moment that Rothmiller began studying the Okid files, he had not one doubt that Marilyn Monroe was murdered. End quote. Thank you for listening, and stay tuned.
2: Thank you for listening to this podcast. Smoke Filled Rooms kindly asks that you consider donating to the show with whatever you can offer. We would like to be 100% crowdfunded. So we have created PayPal, Patreon and crypto appreciation jars. They can be found at smokefilledrooms.net or on any of the Smoke Filled Rooms social media accounts such as Twitter, Facebook, Instagram and Locals. Thank you in advance for your generous and much appreciated contribution.
0: Smoke-Filled Rooms is a completely independent podcast that is created, written, hosted, produced, and engineered by me, Gregory Zink, and falls under the umbrella of Zink Publishing Incorporated. Additional voicing for the episodes is from the lovely Shari Maharaj. Cheers, and thank you again for listening.